0: Last week, we were going on a walk Sunday afternoon, and uh, it was one of those situations where all of a sudden, just at, you know very quickly, the clouds got very dark, the wind picked up very high, and it started to rain. And my boys, before all that happened, had been you know having their good old time as they were going through the streets and riding their bikes. Um, But when everything changed in that instant, so did their demeanor. They did not want to be on that street anymore. They did not want to be riding their bikes around the neighborhood anymore. Of all the goofy things they were thinking about doing and having fun in the street, there was only one thing they wanted in that instant, and it was to go home. It was to be inside. They had a proper and right fear. They did not want to continue the walk. They didn't wanna go outside and grill. They didn't wanna play basketball. And it's because even at a very young age, they know that that storm is gonna show no exceptions to them. It will bring rain and lightning and perhaps destruction on any. And the only proper response is to flee and find refuge. <clears throat> Certainly there's real trials uh, that, that we all are facing right now. You look at the prayer list and I'm glad that we believe in a sovereign God because we have lots of real concerns that we're lifting up for one another. But at the end of the day, the greatest danger that we all face is Within it is our own sin our own sin is the only thing that can send us to hell we need to rightly recognize that and properly flee to God in repentance and faith and find refuge and there's a simple main point we're going to consider as we go through this extended passage in Deuteronomy 19 it's just simply that God provides refuge for his people God provides refuge for his people We've been discussing (laughs) ad nauseum, (laughs) and I I think rightly so, how the 10 words that were laid out in Deuteronomy 5 informed the entire structure of the book of Deuteronomy. So we've been seeing how those words show us how to interpret each section, because that seems to be what God intended Moses to write um, as far as his formatting for the book of Deuteronomy went. So this is God's intent as God conveyed his word to Moses. So the section that we're starting here in chapter 19, I think, goes through chapter 22, verse 8. And it's built off of the fifth word in the Decalogue, which is, you shall not murder. And what's interesting is this section about you shall not murder is not really detached about what's going to come afterwards. When we were going through the Decalogue, we talked about how the command, you shall not murder, is really just the introduction to the other commands that come after it. We talked about how the Hebrew conveyed that point. Because when you read Deuteronomy 5, it says, You shall not murder. And then the word and pops up for each of the commands that come after it. Meaning every command that comes afterwards is tied to the command, You shall not murder. So it says, You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And what we discussed uh, back when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 5 was just to convey that the message is that any type of sin, certainly murder, but everything else as well, all sin perpetuates death. All sin is deadly. It's you shall not murder, and all these other things that also spread death, even coveting. All sin is deadly. And so we'll be considering that as well as we go out of this section. But certainly in this section, we are going to be talking about primarily the preciousness of human life. So how this section that we're starting here in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 19 relates to what we just covered, it it is not just a break and we have something else to talk about. When we're talking about... The authority that God had put in the nation of Israel, he is now showing them the laws that those authority figures are supposed to be enacting, the, the situations they're to be judging over and how they're to be judging over them. So we're going to be considering what it looks like for these authority figures to properly follow God as well as we consider these commands and how these commands are expanded as we go forward into Deuteronomy. So let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Notice who is the actor primarily in those verses. It is God. God is the one who is cutting off the nations. God is the one who is giving them the land. And God is giving them cities and houses that they didn't build. God is giving all of this to them. God is reminding the people that their entrance into this promised land is only by his power and by his grace. And he's using that to convey a point here that when they do enter into this land and receive this gift, they shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Because of God's grace and work for the people They are to respond in obedience and worshipful obedience at that. So the cities that they're establishing are meant to be, I think, in parallel to the cities that were mentioned earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and then there's a half-tribe of Manasseh were living east of the Jordan River, and they had three cities of refuge. And so now there's to establish three, others of cities, three other cities of refuge here on the west side of the Jordan. And why? Verse 3 says, You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. They are to set up these cities specifically for a manslayer to flee to the city. What's interesting is that term for a manslayer it actually is the same term that be, can be used to describe a murderer. So when we look at the command in Deuteronomy chapter 5, When we read, you shall not murder, you could also understand that to mean you shall not kill. It has a full orb sense. And here we're seeing that this term for a manslayer can be used to describe a murder. The pivotal difference, and we'll see this as we go forward, is that the evidence of the situation matters tremendously. We're not fully in control of everything that's going on. We'll talk about that as we go forward. So, what this is saying is that God's standard of justice requires a thorough examination of circumstances for proper justice to be done. Now, certainly, that life would be lost is a tremendous um, tragedy. So the the question could be, why is it that God would make any provision for a manslayer? Why not just treat them as a murderer? And it's because God's standard is just. He has given them this law for a fitting punishment for what has happened reflect God's just and righteous character. Other ancient law codes, you probably have heard these sorts of things. Other ancient law codes, if you stole, in these other ancient societies, you could likely get your arm chopped off. Well, how are you going to make restitution for what you've stolen if you don't have the ability to work that you otherwise had? That doesn't reflect a right standard. So the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth standard is really meant to convey a just and equal weight that uh, causes Punishments to fit the crimes, and uh, Alec was pointing this out as well. As we go forward, when we talk about what's happening with this manslayer, he has to leave his life, drop his life, and flee to the city of refuge and become a citizen of the city. So it's not like he's getting off completely scot-free. He has to undergo an entire upheaval of his life in light of the light, in light of the life that had been lost. So verse four and five gives some instruction about how to navigate the difficulty of the situation. It says, This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So it lays out what, what God has in mind when he's giving this sort of provision even for a manslayer. There, there's no sort of premeditation. It is a complete and utter accident that the manslayer had no control over. He could not have known that the axe is going to break apart at that moment. He had no idea that the axe would break apart in such a way as to kill someone in that moment. This is just purely the result of living in a fallen world. So what he is to do is to demonstrate that he had no premeditation, no intent to have this happen by fleeing from the scene. Oftentimes you'll hear about uh, criminals returning to the scene of the crime, seeing what has happened. Almost uh, it seems like there's a sense of basking in it. And that's not to be the case for this manslayer. They are to flee as soon as this happens. They are to take no part in what has happened and to demonstrate that they had no hatred for their neighbor. And it, the innocence of this person in this situation is so stark that it's going to go on and God's going to say that this person who is a manslayer actually has innocent blood in and of himself. He is innocent. But what's we were discussing this yesterday morning as well. What's so striking is the manslayer is going to be declared innocent, but he doesn't get to stay there and make his excuses and explain himself. He has to flee. There's no defending yourself There's no giving giving your defense there. You have to flee. This is true for someone who is declared innocent in the passage, and I think this has huge spiritual implications for all of us who are not innocent. All of us who are guilty in sin. It could be easy to look at a passage like this and to think, this really doesn't have implications for me. I've not murdered someone. I'm not a manslayer. But the New Testament standard that's laid out, obviously if you committed murder you are liable to judgment what does jesus say if you are angry at your brother in your heart you are liable to judgment anger is set up as murder because of how it dishonors god that hatred conveyed towards one to another human being even from the heart is the same heart that is at play in an instance of murder and indeed, we were discussing this yesterday, this, conveys, this point is conveyed in the fact that all of sin, the wages of all sin, is death. So this is conveying something about how we are to treat sin. We are not to dabble with sin, we are to flee from sin. We are not to be those who accommodate sin, we are to be those who cut it off. We are not to be excuse makers, we are to be repentant. And we have an instance here where we see what happens if we don't flee. Verse 6 says, Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. So, in this, this section, it's talking about this avenger of blood pursuing the manslayer if the manslayer is not obeying what god's word says here to flee to that city of refuge the avenger has the right to to come up to this this manslayer and to execute a sort of justice on him and to strike him fatally so the question is who who is this avenger so that what's interesting is the term here for avenger is actually the same word used in the book of ruth to talk about a kinsman redeemer The avenger is a redeemer. What that means is his role is is to be a a family member who essentially settles the estate of a family member who died. He has a duty to honor his deceased family member by rectifying his estate. Now, in this instance, it's making sure that the person who killed him has justice performed upon them. Or in the case of, uh, if they don't, like in the instance of Ruth, Ruth's deceased husband did not have a son. He had no one to perpetuate his name. And so the kinsman redeemer was supposed to perpetuate his name in the land as a way of honoring his family member. And again, we're, we're seeing here that this person, the manslayer, is innocent and yet it is so right for the avenger of blood if they are treating this death as flippant to bring about a justice upon them. And again, if that's true for someone who is innocent, how much truer is it for us who are indeed guilty? We'll talk about this more as we go forward in the, in the passage, but Jesus is simultaneously going to be the kinsman redeemer for his people, but he is also the avenger of blood on all the guilty. Acts 17, Paul's laying out that God has declared that Jesus is to judge the living and the dead by raising him from the dead himself. This has been declared. It is going to happen. And so we all have to hear that message and flee for refuge that we might not come under his right wrath against our sin. It's it's very true, and and you see this in the Psalms, it's very true that people suffer tremendously at the hands of other people. It's very true. I don't want to make light of that. But I, I want us to be careful because oftentimes what's, conveyed to us in the culture is that if you have been hurt by someone else you are therefore a victim and you have no moral responsibility for what you do in response you can you essentially become a broken toy that can do whatever you want and there's no moral culpability for what you do and i just want to point out that's not biblical you see this in psalm 25 psalm 25 talks about the persecution that's coming upon the psalmist, and yet he is confessing his own sins to God at the same time. So that he doesn't come under God's judgment. So what I'm trying to convey is that that unbiblical message that your response to being wronged doesn't matter, that actually perpetuates more hurt. It doesn't provide any sort of healing. You, you see this oftentimes where people who are sinned against but don't confess or repent um, about their own sin they actually end up doing the same sorts of sins that have been done to them and then they perpetuate those same sorts of sins and the Bible's clear about what happens in those instances if that person is going to con- perpetuate sin they're not going to confess they're not going to repent they will end up under God's judgment people suffer truly and tremendously at the hands of other people, and yet we all still need to flee to Christ in repentance and faith, that we might experience salvation from the wrath that we would otherwise rightly deserve. And as we do, we find true refuge, true healing, healing that heals us both of our sins and of the things that we've endured, perhaps, at the hands of others. Healing that begins now and comes to its fullness in the new creation. So we have to understand that the only real refuge that exists is in Jesus Christ, and we only experience that refuge in Christ through repentance and faith. Verse 8 says, And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking ever in His ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So that's a it's a big thought that's all packed together in those three verses. So I'm going to try to pull out uh, what God is saying here, piece by piece. I want to start by talking about the dynamic where They have to add additional cities as the land expands so that there are provisions for further tragedies that would happen in this fallen world. If they don't, they're going to have blood on their hands. And I think what's really interesting about this dynamic is that our life circumstances can improve, and we need to not lose sight of the fact that we still live in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. This is not heaven. He's talking about the land expanding. God-fulfilling promises. But he's also telling them that just because things are getting better does not mean we've arrived. This is helped for, for us to be careful with how we treat land, how we treat riches. Psalm 62 says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Riches are fleeting. They do not save us from our sins. And just as Israel has experienced a, a, a greater material blessing as the land increases, the justice must say the same. They're not to become lax in following God's word. We see with the book of Joshua, Joshua does well with this. When they come into the land and they take the land, he establishes three cities of refuge for the Israelites because he doesn't forget God's word. He he follows the Lord faithfully and applies that this instruction in that context even as they're experiencing God's grace and blessing upon them and I think what's being hinted at here in this passage talking about how this is what they need to do as the land expands what we're seeing is God's plan is to expand refuge to not just further parts of Israel but to the ends of the earth that is God's intent to give a refuge for all people it says, And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, God has promised to give them an expanding land. We talked about that dynamic back in Deuteronomy 12. God reiterated this, this promise that he was going to expand their land. And here is saying that this is in accordance with what God had promised to their fathers. I think that's primarily focused on promises made all the way back to Abraham. Through the fall... Through Adam's failure in the garden, there was cursing that came upon the land. Abraham is called to be God's chosen man, that through him, God would bring blessing to the peoples of the earth who are under the curse that had come from Adam. And for that purpose, God had promised to give Abraham a land. But because that land was simply a vehicle to to blessing all the peoples of the earth, Paul talks about how, in Romans 4, Abraham knew that he was to be heir of the world because of the promises God had given to him. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham that his seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And what that means is his enemies, those who would curse him, are going to experience cursing. But that means that Abraham's land is going to be throughout all the earth. It's moving in that direction. And then when God reiterates promises to Isaac in Genesis 26, he promises to give Isaac these lands. So God is going to provide an expansive land for his people, but it is conditional. Verse 9 says, Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking ever in his ways. We've discussed in our previous section who that's going to be. It is their king who is going to keep the commands of God, who is going to love the Lord your God. He is going to do these commands fully so that the land expands not just to the fullest extent of Canaan, but to the ends of the earth. Indeed, Christ comes as that king, as the true Israel, the better Adam. He fulfills the law and through the dominion he takes in his death and resurrection, he assumes all authority in heaven and on earth. All of that is given to him by the Father through what he has done. And because of what he's done on the cross, he not only takes dominion, he provides perfect refuge for all peoples of the earth. There's salvation to be found in Christ, there's healing to be found in Christ, and we have a new creation hope in Christ. We talked about that when we were looking at Revelation 21. Those gates are always open. Did you see that? The gates are always open. There's no threat, there's no threat, there's perfect refuge people come in and there is no threat for anyone to come upon them there's no avenger of blood because Christ's blood has been spilled to cleanse us <clears throat> so the church the church is that new Jerusalem that's how I take that language He talked about the new Jerusalem coming down adorned as a bride we are to be that city of refuge here and now we are to be that city on a hill that proclaims the refuge to be found only in Christ Amen. there is only one place of refuge That is in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So we are to be a refuge for all people to repent and turn from their sins and cling to Christ in faith. But for us to be that pure, spotless bride and true city of refuge, we cannot tolerate high-handed and unrepentant sin. Verse 11 says, But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies... And he flees into one of these cities. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. So in this instance, what we're seeing is there's an individual who's tried to come into the city of refuge as if they were an innocent manslayer. But that's not the case. This is someone pretending to be something that they're not. They are lying, they are playing the hypocrite, they're deceiving. And then God's instruction is plain. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood, so that he may die. They are did provide this murderer no quarter. How do they know? Well, it seems that the elders of his city had done examination of the evidence. That's going to come up here at the beginning of chapter or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 19. We had seen other passages earlier in Deuteronomy emphasizing the necessity of thorough examination of evidence to substantiate a claim. You see that in Numbers 35 when it's discussing these cities of refuge as well. It says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So what, what's being talked about here in verses 11 and 12 is an instance where someone has fled to the city of refuge, but the evidence shows that they did not accidentally kill this person. They intentionally killed this person. And that avenger of blood is then to fulfill his family duty to do what God had called for in Genesis 9, that if a man sheds another man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. Amen. That's, that's what this avenger of blood is to do, is to follow the word of God. Additionally, the government in our day, per Romans 13, is to wield the sword in such a way as to punish the evildoer who would kill another person. And verse 13 gives further instruction on this. It says, your eye shall not pity him. But you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. They are to execute this justice on the murder and not have pity. Their pity should be upon the person who was murdered. We need to speak prophetically to our government that they would indeed enact laws that are in accordance with God's word that treat murder as murder. The death penalty is biblical for murderers. We should not equivocate about that. And we need to treat all murderers as murder. Abortion is murder. And part of the failure with how our country has handled abortion has started in the church itself. Even at this moment, there are churches that teach that a, a woman could willfully abort her child, murder her child, and still not be held culpable for that act. Churches are saying that sort of thing. Certainly, we should examine those instances when an abortion takes place. We should do the thorough um, examination and and investigation of the situation. But anyone who is willfully killing a baby should be punished as a murder. God's word is clear on these matters. And yet, our... Testimony as an American church, the enactment of such a standard by the American government has failed to meet God's standard, and we have a profound blood guilt on our land. Amen. This is part of what it makes it so difficult to vote in the United States. The Democrats treat abortion as health care, a reproductive right. It is murder. It is not a holy sacrament. Such an idea is demonic. And this is why uh, we have taught and why I stand by the claim that to vote for a Democrat is outside the bounds for a Christian to do. That does not mean one has to, and in some instances, I don't think one should vote for a Republican. There are Republicans who are pro-choice as well. And oftentimes, Republicans don't treat abortion as murder either. It seems to be more of a misdemeanor in some of their minds. This is not in accordance with God's standard. At the end of the day, neither of these parties are really treating abortion how they should. And so we need to be very careful in how we approach voting. I know this is a sad reality, but it should remind us that the great problem we face, for us individually and for us as a country, is spiritual. The solution to our spiritual depravity is not more government. It is not a better economy. As we've discussed, there is one refuge for us. And that is to be found in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Amen. And we need to proclaim that word to all those around us, in our neighborhood, in this church, in the government. There is only one hope to be found We should not rest our hope in politicians. We should rest our hope in the king. As we consider the implications of what's talked about here in verse 13, it says, Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. This has implications for the church as well. For the church to be healthy and biblical, the church must be intolerant. I'm going to say it again. For the church to be healthy and biblical, it must be intolerant. Now, how do we define intolerance? We're going to have more time to discuss this going forward next week. But intolerance is defined by God. It's not by our standards or what we think culture should be. It is defined by what has God said. You have an instance of this in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a person who is living a life of sexual immorality, and Paul tells them, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He goes on to say, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul has in mind this purging impurity of Deuteronomy when he's talking in 1 Corinthians 5. They are to be careful about this leaven being in the midst of them. They are to maintain their purity and be careful by purging the evil person from among them. Lest that bad moral permeate the entire church body. We've been talking about here how the instance of a person who's guilty of murder, they are handed over to the avenger of blood. In 1 Corinthians 5, the person's handed over to Satan. They're handed over to Satan so that in their following of Satan, they experience the consequences of following Satan. But in God's grace, this is a gift. It is for the destruction of the flesh that they might be saved so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So when I say the church must be intolerant, that is based on the standard of God's word and it's for the express purpose of redemption, of repentance, of restoration. If we do not live... A holy life as a church body, we will not proclaim a faithful and consistent gospel. And just as it says here in verse 13, it will not be well with us. Verse 14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, you might have a reaction to that verse that was kind of similar to mine when I was reading this earlier uh, to get ready for this week. It kind of strikes you, how does this fit in the context? It seems a bit random. But if I can offer a couple of things. The words here about the inheritance that you'll hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, that's actually really similar phrasing to the very beginning of the passage you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is from verse 2. So this is kind of tying right back into the beginning section discussing manslaughter and then murder after it. And in a a way, it's very similar actually to what we were looking at when we were looking at the 10 words from Deuteronomy 5 and how after you shall not murder, all those other commands are linked by the word and. So... This person who is stealing by moving a landmark is acting in a way that's contrary to life. That sin is going to breed death. So I think we have good biblical grounds here to see that God does believe in individual property rights. So if we have an instance where the government is trying to seize our property, we can say God says that this is wrong. But Hebrews 11 also tells us that they might still take our property. And what we can do in that moment is rejoice. Because they can take all the property we have here. They cannot touch our eternal inheritance. As you go forward in the Old Testament, one of the commentators that I was reading was talking about passages that talk about this moving of a a landmark. And it's laid out as a very um, heinous sin to God. to to not trust God to enlarge your land according to his promise but I think Alec was mentioning this yesterday to enlarge your land based off of your stealing was a significant crime in God's eyes the question is why what makes this something so heinous to God I think there's a few different factors that all culminate together here one of them is that the person's livelihood is coming from that land that you're stealing So in that way, we see the pursuit of death taking away livelihood. Additionally, the verse says that this is uh, a landmark which the men of old have set. Their ancestors have given them this land. This is part of their heritage and family life. But also, it says that this is the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is a gift from God. And if we think broader, we can understand how land is important to God. God made his image bearers. From the dust of the ground, from the land. God sustains his image bearers by providing for them produce that comes from the ground. Deuteronomy 12, as we've mentioned earlier, how there's uh, some parallel there. Deuteronomy 12 talks about how God wants to dwell with his people in the land. Leviticus 25 talks about how the people are not to sell the land because the land ultimately belongs to God. He bestows it on the tribes by lot. And the ultimate problem here is that the land is meant to be reflective of the glory of being with God and experiencing life in God's presence. To steal from that from someone else is an affront ultimately to God. It also reflects a discontentment with what God had given that individual. And that inheritance the individual has is meant to reflect of how the Lord is their chosen portion and cup. Psalm 16 The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David's using language from the book of Joshua to talk about how the inheritance in Joshua is just a taste of the ultimate inheritance they have, which is knowing God. So for us who have been adopted into God's family, who have that eternal inheritance we've been discussing, we need to be a people that's profoundly content in this life even if it is just with food and clothing. For us as a church, uh, we were talking about this yesterday as well, for us as a church, we get to practice this together in some form or fashion. It would be nice for us to have a good brick and mortar building that was ours and that we owned. That would be nice. But I think we can be very thankful that we have a space to meet in in general. That's a huge blessing in and of itself. We don't deserve to have a space, but God's given us one. We can be thankful for that. We can also be thankful that we are a church that is seeking to be always reforming. And God is giving us grace to make us more like his son. There are plenty of churches that have big buildings and very little health. I would, be, I would much prefer that God be bestowing much health on us and us have no building. We are very blessed. We should be a very thankful people. The problem with discontentment is not just that we will be unhappy. It's that it will breed a constant unhappiness that we're never thankful for what God gives us. And in that, we will never be praising God for what he has provided. And what that's going to breed is death because it's going to hinder our worship of God. We see a lot of these threads. I mentioned earlier the book of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer there. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth. There was a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, who was closer in line, a closer kinsman than, than, than Boaz was. And so he had the first right of refusal in this situation. And what we see from that kinsman redeemer is that he ultimately does not want to redeem because he does not have a high regard for the land of his deceased relative. He does not have a, a high regard for Ruth as an image bearer. He doesn't have a high regard for that family member who died so as to perpetuate his name by giving him a son. And what that ultimately reflects is that that kinsman redeemer who's not named in the scriptures does not have a high regard for God. He disregarded his duty, he disregarded his family, and his name is disregarded from the biblical narrative. Mm -hmm. We have the same propensity, though, to disregard God, to disregard others, to focus on what we have and to neglect our duty to praise God and to love others. And this earth is filled with such guilt. In Numbers 35, when it's talking about the manslayer who flees to the city of refuge, the only way they can leave that city of refuge and resume a somewhat normal life is through the death of the high priest. And we can praise God that we have a high priest, a perfect high priest of a new and better covenant who is a faithful kinsman redeemer. Christ indeed has purchased us through his own blood shed on the cross through his death as our faithful high priest and we have both refuge and a beautiful inheritance in him we are a bride who has been cleansed through his blood given perfect refuge in him we are made that new Jerusalem prepared for dwelling in the new creation a land where there is no sin there is no evil because the Lord It's making all things new, and he is and will be in our midst. For those who remain in sin, and indeed seek to shed the blood of the bride of Christ, Alec was mentioning this yesterday, Revelation 6, you see a portrait of of how God responds to this. There are saints who have been martyred, who cry out, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And the rest of the book of Revelation is that answer. God is going to avenge. And all those who remain in their sin will see Christ, not as the kinsman redeemer, but as the avenger of blood for those who have sinned against his people. Because he is both. He is the avenger of blood on the wicked. He is the kinsman redeemer for his bride. So it behooves us to flee from sin. To turn from sin. To cling to Christ in faith. To trust him. To follow him. And even through the difficulty to know that he is our refuge, he will continue to give us refuge, and we can be a people filled with thanksgiving. The Lord is our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just thankful for the immense grace that's been shown at the cross. To consider our guilt is overwhelming, but we look at a cross and a Savior who has done something far greater than all of our sins. So I pray that we would cling to Christ, that we would flee from sin, that we would find and enjoy refuge in him, that we would faithfully proclaim this gospel to this lost and dying world. There is true refuge for all sinners, and we are testimony of that. So help us to be a confident people. You are achieving victory, and there's no reason for us to despair. So help us to follow you faithfully. Give us grace to proclaim the gospel and to worship you in all things this week in a manner that's pleasing to you. And we're thankful that we rest in these things, not on our merit, but on the merits of your son. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.